Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Nader Mansour and I pray this message will draw you closer to Jesus. In our study today, we will be looking at a vital and important topic. We will be looking at the topic that deals with the person of Jesus Christ. As the title says, it comes from the book of, Sol of Solomon, the chiefest among 10,000 and the one altogether lovely. This is referring to none other than Christ Jesus. Our purpose today is to exalt and understand the true position that Christ holds. We will be delving into some of the deep things of God. Our instructor and our textbook in this study will be inspiration. We will be utilizing the scriptures. We'll be utilizing them in order to understand some of the deep things of God. The deep things of God is an aspect that is brought out by Paul in the book of 1 Corinthians. He tells us how these deep things of God are revealed to us. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 10. But God hath revealed them unto us by His Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. The scripture tells us that the Spirit of God searches the deep things of God. And through that means, God seeks to reveal to us these deep things things. We want to understand some of these deep things today. We will not fully comprehend all the deep things of God, for God is infinite. But God can give us glimpses and insights that will enable us to have a better understanding of some of the deep things of God. We want to see what is an example of the deep things of God, the things that God has laid up in mysteries that He desires to reveal to us. The answer comes from the very, very same chapter, just a few verses earlier. Notice what the scripture says in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 7. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the world unto our glory. The Bible says that we speak the wisdom of God, which is in a mystery. God wants to reveal to us more about His wisdom. This is one of the aspects of the deep things of God. As we have prayed and asked God for His Spirit to lead us and guide us into all truth, we know and trust and believe that He answers our prayers. Today we want to look at an important aspect. We want to look at the aspect of Jesus Christ, His person, His identity, and the unique and exalted position that He holds as the central pillar of the gospel. You see, the entire gospel is centered in Jesus Christ, particularly the identity of Jesus Christ. That is what sets him apart. And this identity is very clear in the scriptures. Christ is the Son of God, and Christ is the Son of Man. You see, the gospel accounts clearly set forth the humanity of Christ being the Son of God. This is brought out in the Gospel of Matthew. If ever you remember reading the Gospel of Matthew, you'll find that the first few pages are full of names. The first chapter gives us the lineage of Christ as the Son of Man. Perhaps sometimes we are tempted to skip over the first few pages and get into the story. Some of us think it's uh, rather boring to read all these names that we can't even pronounce sometimes. 
But there is a reason why God has inspired Matthew to record this information. You see, what Matthew is doing is giving us clear evidence that this man, Christ Jesus, is indeed a human being like you and me. He is indeed the Son of Man. And he gives us his ancestry. He gives us a list of all the ancestors of Jesus Christ, proving that he is indeed one of us. This is why Matthew, in writing to the Jews, emphasizes the aspect that Christ is linked by lineage and ancestry to both Abraham and David, key important figures in the Jewish economy. We read it in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1, which says, The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Here we see one gospel writer plainly establishing the fact that Christ is the Son of Man. He gives the book of his generations. The wonderful thing is that this aspect is so vital that God gives a second testimony to confirm what Matthew says. In the Gospel of Luke, we see Luke also giving the lineage of Christ. He gives the ancestry of Christ, and this time he traces it through Mary. He writes to the Gentiles, and so he traces the lineage of Christ all the way to Adam. And he tells us there in Luke chapter 3 that Christ ultimately was the son of Adam, which was the son of God, proving beyond a shadow of a doubt that Christ Jesus is indeed in possession of the human nature. He is one of us. This aspect is vital because this double testimony of the gospel writers regarding the human genealogy of Christ is a pillar that we can hold to. Because, as the servant of the Lord tells us, that the humanity of the Son of God is everything to us. It is the golden chain that binds our souls to Christ and through Christ to God. This comes from Selected Messages, Book 1, page 244. You see, the importance of the Sonship of Christ being the Son of Man is everything to us. That is why God selected two Gospel writers to record this pillar stone early on in the gospel. At the onset of the record of the life of Jesus, we are given the pillar that the identity of Christ as the Son of Man is a vital component of understanding the gospel. But we also know that before Christ became the Son of Man, He already was the Son of God. It's interesting to note that this identity of Christ as the Son of God is also noted in the Gospels. The other two Gospel writers give us this divine genealogy and lineage of the Son of God. Notice how it's recorded in Mark chapter 1 and verse 1. It says, The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Here we have a very short list of a line of genealogy. This is referring to the divine genealogy of Christ. Naturally, He is the Son of God. That is not a long line or a list of names. Therefore, the list is very short. But this establishes for us the fact that Christ was the Son of God. He is in possession of the divine nature. Just as He has the human nature by birth, and the Gospel writers went to great lengths to demonstrate this fact, so also Christ, as the Son of God, 
has the divine nature by birth, and the other two gospel writers demonstrate these facts. You see, this is a fourfold testimony of Christ's divinity and Christ's humanity. Let's look at the other verse in John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, which also parallels the account in Mark 1, 1, and refers to Christ as in possession of the divine nature because He is the Son of God. The Bible says there, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. This beginning that is referred to here is the very first thing that ever occurred. This is referring to none other than the Sonship of Christ. His Sonship as the Divine Son of God. This is also brought out and the importance of it in the spirit of prophecy. See, here in this aspect, when we're talking about the Son of God, we are referring to the divine nature of Christ. This short genealogy, being the Son of the Father, that establishes His divinity, is, is referred to in the spirit of prophecy as the assurance of eternal life. In the Youth's Instructor of 1897, we are told, the divinity of Christ is our assurance of eternal life. Thus, we have the testimony of four Gospels emphasizing the human and divine Sonship of Christ. Both are important and both are under attack by the enemy of souls. This is why there is confusion today over the human nature of Christ and also over the divine nature of Christ because Satan knows this is the foundational pillar of the Gospel. This is the central and focal point of the Gospel, Jesus Christ and who He is. This aspect is one of the deep things of God. Notice this following statement from the Spirit of Prophecy that brings this out for us. It says, Dear young friends, are you prepared to behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world? To say, as did Nathanael, Thou art the Son of God, Thou art the King of Israel? You would do well to contemplate the sacred and eternal truth most earnestly and prayerfully until your whole being becomes imbued with its greatness. We are too apt to view truth as a whole and see only the surface when, if we would ponder them, pray over them, and put to the stretch every mental power, we might understand, for God would give us wisdom as He did to Daniel our spiritual senses would be quickened to understand the deep things of God. And this comes from the Youth's Instructor of 1897. You see, the Sonship of Christ is something that we are to contemplate. The fact that He is the Son of God is one of the deep things of God that He desires to give us wisdom as He did, did to Daniel that we might understand it. What is it about the Sonship of Christ that is so important? What, what is it about Him being the Son of God that is so vital that Satan has made it the object of attack? You see, this is the cornerstone of every other truth. This is the foundation of the Church and the Gospel. The fact that Christ is indeed the Son of God. It's one of the deep things of God. The more we learn about the Son of God, the greater will be our understanding of the price that is paid for our redemption 
And as a result, the more we will appreciate the love of the Father in giving us His Son. The Son of God is a point we want to look at a little closer. Have you ever asked yourself the question, why did God have a son? Many of us understand the truth about the Son of God being begotten of God before all things. But perhaps we have not pondered too often the question as to why God had a son. Perhaps sometimes we have. In my conversations with people over the years, many times this question has been the topic of discussion of some of the deep things of God. We would ask ourselves the question, why did God have a son? And many answers and many uh, observations would be offered as to perhaps why God had a son. One of the most common answers and one of the most common reasons that is often given by those who understand these truths is something along the lines of God in His wisdom foresaw that man would fall, that there would be a need for a sacrifice, and therefore God in His foreknowledge and in His wisdom thought it best that He would have a son in order to provide a sacrifice. This reason makes a lot of sense to people, and it might seem logical and reasonable to us. But we must remember something. Just because something seems reasonable or logical to us, just because it makes sense to us, does not necessarily prove that it is truth. After all, God says that my ways are not your ways, and my thoughts are not your thoughts. They are as high as heaven is above the earth. In order for us to understand and seek to find the answer to this question, we must consult the scriptures. We must see what the Bible has chosen to reveal to us about this aspect, which is one of the deep things of God. God indeed has revealed some principles that will help us to peer into this topic, and yet we can never get fully to the bottom of it. It is vital to understand that we are dealing with an aspect that is beyond our complete comprehension. All we can do is catch glimpses of what God chooses to reveal to us by His Spirit. The rest of the lesson will be carried on in heaven. But here on earth, God desires us to begin to understand some of these things. And as far as we are surrendered and open to the promptings of His Spirit, He can reveal to us more and more of these things. Let us read the description that is given to us in the scriptures regarding this divine birth of Christ. And in there, we will see an element that will give us an insight as to how or why perhaps God indeed had a son. We read about it in Proverbs chapter 8, verses 22 to 27. The Bible says there, The Lord possessed me in the beginning of His way before His works of old. I was set up from everlasting, from the beginning, or ever the earth was. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no fountains abounding with water. Before the mountains were settled, before the hills, was I brought forth. While as yet he had not made the earth, nor the fields, nor the highest part of the dust of the world. When he prepared the heavens, I was there. When he set a compass upon the face of the depth. Here we see a description of someone that was born before all things. 
This description is referring to the Son of God. The Son of God here is referring to the time when He was born or begotten before all things were created. We will not take the time here in this study to prove this fact, but we want to build on this truth and seek to go deeper into the Word. Christ, in speaking of His divine birth in this passage, speaks under a very important and significant title. We find it in verse 12. It is called the Wisdom of God. Christ, in speaking about His birth, speaks under the title of the Wisdom of God. This is very significant. We know this is one of the titles of Christ according to 1 Corinthians 1, 24 that tells us that Christ is the wisdom of God and the power of God. We will be exploring that aspect and the link between those two just a little further in the study. But of all the titles that Christ has, the shepherd, the rock, the door, all the titles, the numerous list and the list could go on, all these titles Christ selects the title of the wisdom of God when He speaks of His birth. This reveals to us that this aspect and this truth is nothing short of the wisdom of God. It's one of the deep things of God. Notice how vitally important and relevant this truth is as commented upon by the spirit of prophecy. Let's read the following interesting quote. Quoting Proverbs 8, 22-27, we read after that quote, There are light and glory in the truth that Christ was one with the Father before the foundation of the world was laid. This is the light shining in a dark place, making it resplendent with divine original glory. This truth, infinitely mysterious in itself, explains other mysterious and otherwise unexplainable truths while it is enshrined in light, unapproachable and incomprehensible. And this comes from Selected Messages, Book 1, page 248. Did you see the import of this wonderful truth? The Sonship of Christ, the fact that He was one with God from the beginning, quoting this passage that speaks of His divine birth, we are told is an infinite mystery. It's an infinite truth that explains other truths. Yet it itself is enshrouded in light, unapproachable and incomprehensible. Only by God's Spirit can we seek to understand a little of what God has revealed. And as we understand more of this wonderful truth, it will explain other truths to our understanding. The Sonship of Christ as the Son of God is the key to understanding the entire gospel of salvation. Indeed, the entire plan of God for a perfect and happy universe. This is the purpose of God revealing these things to us. And as we seek to understand them, we will be filled with a greater and deeper admiration for the person of Jesus Christ. We will indeed see Him as the one altogether lovely and none other who holds that position with Him. This infinite wisdom of God that is revealed in this act we want to explore a little bit. We saw that Christ as the Son of God is referred to by the title of the wisdom of God. Let us see just how infinite and far-reaching this wisdom of God really is. We read about it in 1 Corinthians 1 chapter, sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 24 which tells us of this title of Christ. 
But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Here we see clear scriptural evidence that this title of Christ is what he referred to and what he used when he was speaking of his birth. Let us see just how far-reaching and how deep and how infinite this wisdom of God really is like. In Romans chapter 11 and verse 33, it says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. Today, we will only be able to look at a glimpse of this wisdom. His ways, His judgments, and His understanding are indeed past finding out. It is for this reason that in heaven we will never cease to learn more and more about the wisdom and infinite majesty and glory of God. But praise the Lord that this learning process can begin here on earth if we are willing to receive the instruction that God gives regarding the deep things by His Spirit which reveals these things to us. I want us to keep in mind that here we are dealing with a very sacred and important subject. It is a subject that is infinite, and therefore we must be very careful and very reverent in approaching and dealing with the elements of this subject. This is a matter that we need to consult God earnestly at every step so that we might understand, and as we understand these things, we will see Christ in a light that perhaps is more beautiful and more glorious than we have before. The title of Christ as the wisdom of God is important to us. You see, God delighted in His Son. He saw in His Son a reflection of His own perfection, the brightness of His glory, and the excellence that dwells in Himself. The perfection of excellence of the very person of the Father was seen in Christ as the Son of God. This is what the same scripture that we read earlier brings out a little later. In Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 30, we read this wonderful description of Christ. It says, Then I was by him as one brought up with him, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him. In Christ, God saw a reflection of his own beauty and perfectness, complete, wanting nothing. It was not lacking in any aspect. Christ rejoiced always before Him. And this is why this aspect is referred to as the wisdom of God. This is why Christ is referred to as the wisdom of God. He is the complete embodiment of the infinite and unsearchable wisdom of God. The Father saw this in His Son. And as a result, we notice this principle that comes out in John chapter 3 as to what the Father did in light of that, notice what it says, John 3 and verse 35. The Father loveth the Son, and hath given all things into His hand. The Father has given all things into the hand of His Son. In His Son, He saw a reflection of His own perfection. And in His Son, He saw that His Son is to inherit all things, and all things were the Son's, because of that divine, wondrous inheritance, which makes Him the Son of the living God. You see, the inheritance of Christ from His Father was complete. It was not deficient in any way. 
this divine birth of Christ and this divine inheritance made Christ of the very nature of God. Christ is in possession of the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And as such, He is God essentially and in the highest sense. This is because the Father hath given all things into His Son. All things were received by Christ from the Father. There was nothing more that God could add or bestow to top up this complete inheritance. This is why it is so vital, and this is why Satan has attacked this wondrous truth. Christ did not need to be exalted any more than He was as the only begotten Son of God. His inheritance was so complete that the Bible refers to it as the wisdom of God. All this was included in that wonderful inheritance. As a loving son, recognizing that his father is the great source of all, Christ was subject to his father. This is how things will be when all things are restored. You see, when the reign of sin is finished, we will see that Christ was indeed in the same position that he always has been, as the son of the living God. Christ recognized that as the Son of God, He inherited and received all things from His Father. In recognition of this fact, Christ was in loving submission to His Father. The Scriptures brings this out, but the important point that we need to remember, remember and the principle in the Scriptures is that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This fact illustrates to us that when the end of all things is at hand, and when sin has been put down, Christ will occupy the same position He always has occupied, that is, as a loving Son who submits to His Father. This is recorded for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 28. The Bible says, And when all things shall be subdued unto Him, then shall the Son also Himself be subject unto Him that put all things under Him, that God may be all in all. You see, Christ will be subject to the Father. But this future aspect is also applicable to the present and the past, for Christ Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Christ always was subject to the Father. This is brought out also in the description that John uses that we read in John chapter 1 and verse 1, where Christ is referred to as the Word of God. You see, Christ as the Word of God meant that the thoughts of God were expressed through Christ. Just as our words are subject to our thoughts, so also Christ was submissive and subject to His Father. Actually, He was God's thoughts made audible. That's why He is called the Word of God. Keep in mind that this submission is not as a result of an inequality or a lower order of things. Christ is not submissive because He is less. Christ is submissive because He is a loving Son who loves His Father. He is totally and completely equal with God, possessing equally the divine nature. But He is also the Son of the living God. And this aspect we will explore a little closer as we study further what is it that the title of the Christ as the wisdom of God really means and why is it that God in His infinite wisdom had a son. And why is it that He only had one 
begotten Son. You see, these aspects are questions that help us delve into some of the deep things of God. And we can only go as far as what God has revealed. It would be futile for us to speculate and try and conjecture regarding some of these things. The only way we can get answers is from the scriptures. And as the Bible says, what God has revealed is for us to understand, but the secret things belong unto the Lord our God. We can only comprehend as far as what God has chosen to reveal. We must ever keep that in mind so that we might not go into a delusion based on speculation and wishful thinking. This has been sadly the error of many in the history of the Christian church and even in the history of the Adventist church. But God has given us the wonderful promise in Deuteronomy 29, 29 to safeguard us from this danger. As we continue and see the position of Christ as the Son of God, the perfect, the perfect embodiment of God's character, the express image of His person and the brightness of His glory, this helps us understand an aspect that is vital. You see, Christ was brought forth from the Father before all things were created. He was the Word of God from the beginning. And as the Word of God, that meant the authority of God was expressed in the Word of God. When God and His Son, Christ Jesus, were contemplating creating a universe and populating it with beings, they made a very important decision. They decided in those councils to give to those beings the most important gift that God would give to His beings. That is, excluding the gift of Jesus Christ to fallen mankind. But we are talking here about a universe that does not have sin. A universe that would be given the gift of freedom of choice. God would create beings and creatures that were free moral agents. They were intelligent beings, beings who could choose who had the freedom to choose. This is the case with all intelligence that God has created that has a moral and spiritual perception. This wonderful and free gift meant something. It meant that these decisions that would be made needed to be made in the right way. That is, there had to be a system of education, a system whereby these beings could learn more about God more about the principles of his government and his character so that they might freely, without force or coercion, choose to serve him, choose to pattern themselves after him, and choose to be like him. This is the only way that they could really grow. Love dictates no force, but it dictates freedom. It dictates that there needs to be freedom to choose, for that is the only way that character and true love can be developed and responded to. This is the only way that God so fit, and that is why He gave to His creatures this free uh, moral principle of freedom of choice. But like we said, there had to be a system in place whereby these beings could learn how to constantly and consistently make the right choice. The principle of learning is laid out plainly for us in the scriptures. How were the beings going to learn wisdom? How were they going to learn about God? The answer is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18, 
which tells us, But we all, with open face, beholding, as in a glass, the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image, from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Here we see a wonderful principle brought out, a principle that does not only apply on earth. The principle is this, we are changed by beholding. If any of you have children and are parents, you will know clearly that your children learn primarily through observing the parents. Educators tell us that there are three vital components and factors above all others by which children learn. The first factor is example. They learn by example more than anything else. The second one is just like it. It's also example. And so is the third one. This principle is what God has instilled in us, that by beholding, we are changed. Children are more likely to do what you do more than what you say. Example holds a great power. And man has recognized this. And sadly, man's actions sometimes don't harmonize with his instructions, which gives rise to the saying, do as I say, not as I do. The reason is, what I do has much more influence in teaching you than what I say. This system of education, this principle of learning is ordained of God, that as creatures would look and observe, they would learn by observation. By beholding, they would become changed. This is the same for us. It's a law of intellectual and spiritual nature that by beholding, we also become changed. And God wants us to behold His Son, that we might be changed into His image. But these principles in the scriptures that we're looking at, we are seeing how they are eternal principles that apply not just on earth, not just under the reign of sin. So God was to have a system of education, a system where these creatures and beings would be changed by beholding. The intelligences and the creatures that God made needed to behold the attributes of God in a manner that they could learn from. In order for them to grow as free moral agents, there had to be choices. They had to make the right choice always, and therefore there needed to be a system of education. And this system of education is a system of beholding. It's not words and instruction as much as example and something that they could see. You see, the beings needed to learn how to be subject to God, how to love God, how to worship God, how to love each other, how to serve each other. These are the elements that make up for a happy existence in heaven. How was God going to teach them these things? He would do it by giving them an example. By beholding, they would be changed into these things. Well, then the question is, what? were they going to behold? The answer is the wisdom of God. They would behold the wisdom of God. And by beholding, they would be changed into the same image. The wisdom of God is the Son of God. This is why the Son of God was the express image of the Father's person and all the brightness of His majesty and glory. Notice how the scriptures brings this wonderful aspect out in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, 
has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What a beautiful scripture. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. I want to ask you a question. Does this verse only apply here on earth? Or is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God always seen in the face of Christ? This is an eternal principle. From the beginning, Christ was the outshining of the Father's glory. Christ was the one in whom all these creatures would see, would behold in a living manner, the glory of God. That is how they would learn about the wisdom of God. And that is how they would pattern themselves after God, by following the example of Christ. God, you see, has placed all his wisdom and all his infinite knowledge as a source of learning and education for the whole universe. All this has been placed and hidden in his son, Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 3, where it says, Christ, speaking of Christ, of course, it says, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The infinite wisdom of God was placed in Christ. The Bible uses the term there, hidden, means it is placed there in order to be revealed, not in order for it to be hidden so that no one would see it. But it is hidden because it is infinite It is in its nature. God needs to reveal it as we are capable of receiving it. And God was revealing that to his creatures as they would grow and learn. They would learn more and more of this infinite wisdom that is stored and housed in Christ, the Son of the living God, the wisdom of God. You see, Christ Jesus said on earth that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by him. Does that mean that this only applies on earth? Is Christ only the way to the Father for sinners? No, friends. The scriptures are giving us a principle of the position and eternal role of Christ as the only way to the Father for everyone. Christ was the way to the Father before sin ever entered the universe. He was the wisdom of God revealed in a manner that all the creatures of heaven could behold and pattern themselves under, uh, pattern themselves after, and be under the leadership of Christ to learn more about how to love God, how to submit to God, how to give glory and honor to God, how to love and serve each other, how to receive and share with each other. All these elements are seen in the face and the example of Jesus Christ. He is the only way to the Father. And when he came to earth, he continued to carry out this position in a manner that is particularly relevant for us. He had to veil his glory and veil his divinity so that we could behold him in a manner that he would also be the way to the Father for us. God, Christ is the only way to the Father. He always has been. He always will be. This is a revelation of God's wisdom and God's infinite understanding. All this was placed in His Son. And so looking at the Son, all would learn more about God. Everyone 
would gain a correct understanding of God by looking at the wisdom of God. Only through the Son can the Father be rightly understood. You see, looking at the Father without the Son, we would see something that is along the lines of what we will explore in just a minute. You see, if we were to take the Son of God out of the picture just for a minute, only in our minds, just to look at the situation and how the universe would function if the, if the Father did not have a Son. Looking at the Father without the Son, what would these beings and intelligent creatures behold? They would see the Father, a being who receives nothing from anyone. They would see a being who submits to no one, who answers to no one, a being who is totally and completely independent, supreme in authority, and does not worship or submit to anyone. All these aspects and attributes of God, they would see and they would behold. Now the question is, what would they become in light of that? Remember, they would be changed by beholding. They would become independent, unsubmissive beings. Beings who submit to no one, who answer to no one. They would not learn the principles of God's character. This is not a way to run a happy family. You see, God is a being of infinite glory and majesty, so much so that His character can be misunderstood. His character and His nature needs to be explained aright. It needs to be demonstrated aright. And this is why looking at the Father through His Son, everyone would see and understand correctly what God really is like. You see, it's the lies of Satan about God's character that paint Him in a light that we think of Him as a tyrant, or many people think of Him as a tyrant, a severe judge who is waiting for people to sin so that he could send them to destruction. This is not an accurate picture of God. But God is so infinite in majesty and holiness that his character, unless it is rightly divided or rightly explained and interpreted, can be seen in a false light. You see, God really is a being of infinite love and goodness. He is of infinite compassion and mercy and justice and holiness. These attributes of God are clearly seen aright for what they really are in the person of Christ, His only begotten Son. You see how the wisdom of God for the happiness and eternal security of a universe that would be full of free moral agents was that He, in His wisdom, had His Son. His Son was to be the one that holds all things together. Looking at the Father through the Son, we see that His character is revealed correctly. His character is revealed accurately. His character is revealed in a way that we can pattern after. You see, there's an aspect that perhaps we do not think of. We can never be fully like God the Father. It's impossible for us. God the Father is the great source of all. He is the one from whom all things flow. And He is the one that rules and answers to no one. We are never called upon to be like that. It is through Jesus Christ that we see the attributes and the character of God the Father of love, mercy, justice, of service, and common 
sharing of all that belongs to him with his creatures, we see these things demonstrated in Christ Jesus. And as we pattern ourselves after the Son of God, we pattern ourselves after the character of the Father, which we can assimilate. This is really reflecting God. We will never be fully like God because we will never be God. We will never be divine in possession of the divine nature in and of ourselves, as the New Age teaches. This was a lie created by Satan in the Garden of Eden to fool Adam and Eve and to fool humanity. We can never be in the same position equally as God. We are creatures. He is the Creator. We can pattern ourselves and we can copy His character as we behold it in Jesus Christ and because of sin as we are empowered by the grace of Jesus Christ. This is what we can be and this is the true reflection of what God can do in us. This is the true reflection of His character and that's how we grow and never cease to grow. Notice how this wonderful statement brings out what is seen in or through Christ as we look to the Father. The quote says, The light of the knowledge of the glory of God is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. From the days of eternity, the Lord Jesus Christ was one with the Father. He was the image of God, the image of His greatness and majesty, the outshining of His glory. It was to manifest this glory that He came to our world. To this sin-darkened earth, He came to reveal the light of God's love, to be God with us. Therefore, it was prophesied of Him, His name shall be called Emmanuel. And that's from the book, The Desire of Ages, page 19. You see, Christ was the revelation of God, was the manifestation of God from the days of eternity. He always was in that position. Christ was manifesting the glory of God in heaven long before He came to this earth. He was a teaching tool. He was a system of education whereby the entire universe would learn more about God. He was and is the wisdom of God. This is why the scriptures tell us that all things were made for Him. Notice Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. It says, For by Him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by Him and for Him. Why were they created for Him? To teach, to instruct, to guide, to bring closer to God by beholding. By observation, these creatures would learn more about God. Christ was the way to the Father. This is why God gave Him all things. He was the divine teacher of all. He was the manifestation of what the truth really was. His, his function and His role was to bear witness and testify and reveal what God's wisdom was, what the truth about God really was. Notice how Christ referred to this eternal purpose when He was answering the question of Pilate in the judgment in John chapter 18 and verse 37. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. 
Christ says that he was born and also he came into this world for the same purpose and the same reason, that he might bear witness for the truth, that he might bear witness unto the truth. He was a living embodiment of what the truth is. This is the wisdom of God in having a son. In looking at the son, the beings would see in Christ a complete and correct interpretation and understanding of God's character. Notice this beautiful description that also comes from the book, The Desire of Ages, revealing further this wonderful fact. We read together, But turning from all lesser representations, we behold God in Jesus. Looking unto Jesus, we see that it is the glory of our God to give. I do nothing of myself, said Christ. The living Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father. I seek not mine own glory, but the glory of him that sent me. In these words is set forth the great principle, which is the law of life for the universe. All things Christ received from God, but he took to give. So in the heavenly courts, in his ministry, for all created beings, through the beloved Son, the Father's life flows out to all. Through the Son, it returns in praise and joyous service, a tide of love to the great source of all. And thus, through Christ, the circuit of beneficence is complete, representing the character of the great giver, the law of life. And that's from Desire of Ages, page 21. What a wonderful description of how things are even before sin. It's how things were. You see, without Christ, this circuit of beneficence cannot be complete. This is before the entrance of any sin or rebellion. Thus, Christ is the wisdom of God. You see, in essence, Christ takes his creatures by the hand and into the court of God, the king of the universe, he shows how these creatures are to behave, how each and every member of the heavenly family is to behave and act. That is, he says, watch me and learn from me. Watch me and follow my example. He is the word of God. By submitting, obeying, and showing his reverence to the Father, he demonstrates the pattern that all the beings in heaven were to follow. If we were to illustrate this principle, it would look something like this. As we bef see before us this illustration of the words that we just read, we notice in this diagram that the Father is placed as the great source of all. His Son, Jesus Christ, receives all things from Him, and it's through the Son that love and life and fullness of blessing flows out to all created beings. And in return, love, joyous service, and thanksgiving and praise returns freely from all these creatures to the Father through the Son. You see, the Son here holds a position of linking the entire circle together. And we are told that this is called the universal law of life. This is how things run and operate in a universe free from sin. This is how God ensured the happiness and joy of all his creatures in making his son the one through whom all things hold. That is because he is the wisdom of God. You see and understand now 
why Christ is indeed referred to as the one altogether lovely. There is no one like Him. He is the key. He is the link that holds together the circuit of beneficence. And that's why all things were made for Him, so that He might be the link between all things and the Father, thus signifying the great law of life. That is, representing the character of the great source of all, the Father. This wonderful revelation of love and wisdom that God has given us gives us a deeper insight as to what God risked when He gave His only begotten Son to be our sacrifice. You understand now that God literally risked the entire universe by sending us the one that holds the whole universe together in order to redeem us. Friends, this is a deeper revelation of God's love. Notice how Christ was the teaching tool for other beings who did not have sin present. We read, this about, we read about this in a statement that comes also from the spirit of prophecy. Notice how these beings were changed by beholding the wisdom of God. We read the following interesting account, and it goes like this. The Lord has given me a view of other worlds. Wings were given me, and an angel attended me from the city to a place that was bright and glorious. The grass of the place was living green. The birds there warbled a sweet song. The inhabitants of the place were of all sizes. They were noble, majestic, and lovely. They bore the express image of Jesus, and their countenances beamed with holy joy, expressive of the freedom and happiness of the place. And that's from the book Maranatha, page 368. Did you notice something here? Those perfect, happy, holy beings bore the image of Jesus. How did they bear that image? They were changed by beholding. Not changed from sinners to saints. They were perfect, but they grew. And in growing, they change and become more and more like God. This is why God had in His wisdom a son. Isn't it interesting that it doesn't say that they bore the image of God? Why is that? But remember, Christ is the express image of the Father. He said, I and my Father are one. He also said, He that has seen me hath seen the Father. And He said, I am the way to the Father. You see, Christ is the true representation of what God really is like. And in looking at Christ, they were changed and reflected the image of Jesus perfectly, which is really the character of God the Father. This helps us see the wonderful truth of why God had a son. You see, I do not see any light in thinking that God only had a son to later sacrifice him. You see, the Bible tells us in John 3.16 that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. It doesn't say He so loved the world that He had an only begotten Son. His Son was for a perfect universe. This teaches us that Christ being the Son of God was not for the purpose of sacrificing Him, but it was a manifestation of God's wisdom and love for a perfect universe. And it was that love of God that drove him to give his only begotten Son to be sacrificed for us. 
You see, God in His wisdom had a Son as an outshining of His glory to the creatures that He made. It was never, ever God's intention that His Son was to die. Why else do you think it was a struggle for the Father to yield up His Son? God never, ever intended that His Son would die. This was not something that God planned for His Son. And it would be remiss of us not to recognize this. It would paint God in a light that is not entirely accurate for us if we were to think that He only had a Son in order to later sacrifice Him. It would actually demonstrate not a love of God, but rather the opposite. But God's love is revealed in that He was willing to give His Son that He had never planned for Him to be crucified or to die. But His love for us was so great that He was willing to risk the joy and the security and stability of the entire universe in order to save us. We read in the spirit of prophecy that it was a struggle with the Father to give His Son. That struggle is because His Son was for a perfect universe. His Son was the one that holds all things together. And God rejoiced in His Son. God's Son was forever to be the wisdom of God, a revelation of God's truth to the universe. You see, if we think that God only had a Son in order to sacrifice Him, we actually then limit God terribly. We make sin the basis of the Sonship of Christ. This is an aspect that needs to be carefully considered. Imagine God the Father telling His Son when Adam sinned, Well, Son, this is why you were begotten, so that you can go and die for them. I personally think that is not an accurate picture. That is actually a false representation of God's character. But if the truth of the Scriptures is truly understood, we see that the Father, in having His Son, in essence says, You are My Son. In You is hid all My wisdom. You are My manifestation to the whole creation. All is Yours, forever Yours, and all is made just for You. You see, God did not ordain that sin should come into the universe. I want to ask you a question now. I want you to think about it. Did sin have to happen? Did sin have to enter into the universe? In other words, could the first sinner, Lucifer, have repented in heaven? And if he had repented, what would have happened? Would the Son of God have had to die if Lucifer could and have repented? Let's read this answer that comes to us from the great controversy that will shed light on this question and settle it in our minds. Notice the following from the great controversy. God in His great mercy bore along with Lucifer. He was not immediately degraded from his exalted station when he first indulged the spirit of discontent, nor even when he began to present his false claims before the loyal angels. Long was he retained in heaven. Again and again he was offered pardon on condition of repentance and submission. Such efforts as only infinite love and wisdom could devise were made to convince him of his error. The spirit of discontent had never before been known in heaven. Lucifer himself did not at first see whither he was drifting. He did not understand the real nature of his feelings. 
But as his dissatisfaction was proved to be without cause, Lucifer was convinced that he was in the wrong, that the divine claims were just, and that he ought to acknowledge them as such before all heaven. Had he done this, he might have saved himself and many angels. He had not at this time fully cast off his allegiance to God. Though he had forsaken his position as covering cherub, yet if he had been willing to return to God, acknowledging the Creator's wisdom and satisfied to fill the place appointed him in God's great plan, he would have been reinstated in his office. But pride forbade him to submit. He persistently defended his own course maintained that he had no need of repentance and fully committed himself in the great controversy against his maker. And that's from page 495. This paragraph that we just read is truly insightful. We see that Lucifer could have and was offered repentance. And had he made that decision, he would have saved not only himself, but many angels. He was convinced that he was in the wrong, but those sad words, pride forbade him. God knew that in Lucifer persisting in his decision, it would cost him a great and infinite sacrifice. And God pleaded with Lucifer, not out of a selfish motive, but for his love to Lucifer to save Lucifer from the pit of destruction into which he was falling. God appealed to him in all the means that divine wisdom could initiate. And Lucifer persisted. You see, if Lucifer could have repented, and had he done so, there would not have entered sin in the way that we experience it today. Adam and Eve would not have fallen without a tempter to tempt them in the garden. You see, there will be a whole different scenario. We are actually living as I believe, in the worst case scenario ever possible. I know that because nothing worse than the death of the Son of God could happen. We are living in the very blackest and worst scenario possible. This is what has happened. But it did not have to happen this way. You see, God made us free to choose. Lucifer could have made another choice and things would have been vastly different. And if Lucifer had made that other choice, there would have been no need for the Son of God to be sacrificed. Not at all. You see, he was the wisdom of God for a perfect universe. But when sin did happen, which could have been avoided, as we've just seen, God so loved us that he was willing to give us this Son. This is a deeper revelation and understanding of God's wisdom and love. This proves to us that his Son was not begotten for the purpose of a sacrifice. We want to look at the rebellion of Lucifer just quickly and understand the issues that are involved in that. This will help us understand what the wisdom of God really means. You see, the Son of God was next in authority to the great lawgiver. This was his position by inheritance. As a son, he was invested with authority, God's authority, to command the heavenly host. He was authorized by God to be the divine commander of the heavenly host, the angels, the ministers of God. This is why he is also called the Word of God. 
He revealed the commands and words of God to all the creatures. God, therefore, shows that Christ was the one who was authorized by Him to represent Him. And this comes as a result of His inheritance. Lucifer was among these heavenly angels, probably the highest in position and probably the first in creation. We know this because Lucifer held the third highest position in heaven. He held the position right next to Christ. The Father was the great source of all. His Son was the one begotten of Him, inheriting all things. And as we look at that diagram together, we see that Lucifer there actually did hold the highest position that any created being held. That is, the third in command. But Lucifer had a problem in heaven. He had a problem particularly with a specific issue in heaven. Let's read how this is brought out in the Spirit of Prophecy, Volume 1, page 18. Satan and his sympathizers were striving to reform the government of God. They were discontented and unhappy because they could not look into his unsearchable wisdom and ascertain his purposes in exalting his son Jesus and endowing him with such unlimited power and command. Now notice this carefully. They rebelled against the authority of the Son. This is an issue that we need to examine in order to understand clearer what it really means that the Son is called the wisdom of God. Lucifer in heaven particularly rebelled against the authority of the Son. This is what the great controversy is all about. It's a question of authority. Will God's authority, His supreme authority, be recognized as it is in His Son, His only begotten Son? Or will Lucifer's assumed authority be recognized? This is the question that soon will be settled. And this is why in the last battle over the issue of worship, it boils down to whose authority are you going to recognize? Are you going to recognize the authority of the one who said, in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and rested the seventh day, and so we should rest? Or are you going to recognize the authority of the one who implanted a false day of worship in the day of the sun? It's a question of authority. This question of authority began in heaven. Lucifer rebelled against the authority of the sun. It's vital for us to understand why Christ had this authority, how he had this authority, and how Lucifer was warring against the authority of the Son. Let's keep reading and see how further declarations and inspiration helps us to understand the answer. It tells us also in Patriarchs and Prophets, page 40, that Lucifer would never again acknowledge the supremacy of Christ. Lucifer rebelled against the authority of Christ. The authority of Christ is based on His Sonship. It is only natural, therefore, that His Sonship comes into question. You see, because Christ is the only begotten Son, He inherited from the Father all things, including the authority of the Father. He was equal in authority as the Father was, being next in command to Him, and that is signified in the title, The Word of God. The Word of God signifies that Christ speaks with the authority of God. Since His Sonship 
is the foundation and basis of his authority. And since Lucifer rebelled against the authority of the Son, it only makes sense that Lucifer attacked the foundation of this authority. That is the Sonship of Christ. The fact that he was the only begotten Son of God. Notice how this is brought out in this interesting quote from the Spirit of Prophecy. Angels were expelled from heaven because they would not work in harmony with God. They fell from their high estate because they wanted to be exalted. They had come to exalt themselves and for, they forgot that their beauty of person and of character came from the Lord Jesus. This fact the fallen angels would obscure that Christ was the only begotten Son of God. And they came to consider that they were not to consult Christ. One angel began the controversy and carried it on until there was rebellion in the heavenly courts among the angels. And that's from the book, This Day with God, page 128. Did you notice the elements that we talked about portrayed in this quote? The beauty of the person and character of the angels came from Jesus Christ. Why? Because they would behold Him, and by beholding, they were changed. Now, under inspiration of Lucifer and by instigation of his lies, they no longer thought to consult Christ. And led by Lucifer, in rebelling against the authority of the Son, they sought to obscure the foundation of that authority. They, thought, they sought to obscure the fact that Christ was the only begotten Son of God. You see, the Sonship of Christ was attacked in the war in heaven. This element is hardly ever touched upon when dealing with the great controversy by many people. It's a vital element that helps us understand that the issue is really about authority. It's the Sonship of Christ that establishes His authority. Notice how those who were loyal to Jesus Christ, those who were lovingly in submission to His kind and benevolent authority, defended this authority. They defended the authority of the Son by declaring that He is truly the only begotten Son, by defending the foundation of His authority. We read about this in Inspiration, in Spirit of Prophecy, Volume 1, page 19. Angels that were loyal and true clearly set forth that Jesus was the Son of God, existing with Him before the angels were created, and that He had ever stood at the right hand of God, and His mild, loving authority had not heretofore been questioned, and that He had given no command but what it was joy for the heavenly host to execute. You see, the loyal angels were striving to convince their deceived friends that Christ was truly the Son of God, and that this was the foundation of His mild and loving authority. How he truly reflected the Father was because he was the Son. And this issue, like I mentioned, is hardly addressed when we examine the great controversy. Yet it is vital. You understand now why the devil is angry with those who advocate the true Sonship of Christ. Be warned, if you promote and defend the true Sonship of Christ, you become a prime target for Satan. Because in doing that, you are actually establishing the authority of the Son, something that Lucifer hates and rebels against. We need to understand this aspect, that in preaching and declaring the truth about the Son of God, we are really establishing the authority of the Son, 
Those two are linked. His authority is based on his sonship. Lucifer was questioning and rebelling against the wisdom of God. He wanted to do away with the Son of God. He wanted to be like God, to answer to no one, to submit to no one, to have power and control over everyone. He wanted to be like the Most High. He wanted to be in a position of worship. Who stood in his way? What stood in his way of being in the position of the Most High? It was the wisdom of God. You see, Christ, the Son of God, the wisdom of God, was in the position that held everything together in right harmony with God. Lucifer, in trying to break out of that, knew and understood that all this was held together by the Son, and so he rebelled against the authority of the Son of God. It's important to understand these issues. This is the layout for the battle that is going on today. It's still going on. And this is what Lucifer challenged Christ with in the wilderness of temptation. It really was crystallized in that battle, in the wilderness of temptation. You remember Lucifer said to Jesus, If thou be, what? The Son of God. He was attacking his sonship, thereby attacking and questioning his authority. And at the end of that temptation, you remember, Lucifer showed his colors clearly. He showed what he really desired. In the last temptation, he said to Jesus, All these things will I give unto you, if you will bow down and worship me. That is, if you will recognize my authority. It's a question of authority. That's why Christ is being attacked, particularly his sonship, which is the wisdom of God, is under attack. It is that which holds all things together. This question of authority or power, which is really what authority also means, was also questioned on earth in the interactions of Christ with the Jews. Notice this account in Matthew 21, verse 23. And when he was come into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came unto him as he was teaching and said, By what authority doest thou these things? And who gave thee this authority? Here was a good question that relates to authority. This is the problem the Jews had with Christ. By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? Who do you think you are that you can do these things? What is it that Jesus did that prompted this question in this incident? We read about it in verse 12. And Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves. Here we see this important question was instigated by the fact that Christ cleansed the temple. And so they asked him, by what authority do you do this? It's the same question that started the war in heaven. Lucifer rebelled and did not acknowledge the authority of Christ. The Pharisees, just like Lucifer, their father, were not ready to really understand or appreciate the answer that Jesus was going to give them. You see, they asked Jesus, by what authority do you do these things? Who gave it to you? But they were not ready to receive the answer. We know what the answer is. But Jesus, in desiring for them to understand, leads them and leads their minds by using questions. Notice how he continues. Verse 24, And Jesus answered and said unto them, 
I also will ask you one thing, which if ye tell me, I and likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, whence was it? From heaven or of men? And they reasoned with themselves, saying, If we shall say from heaven, he will say unto us, Why did you not then believe, in, believe him? But if we shall say of men, we fear the people for all hold John as a prophet. Verse 27, And they answered Jesus and said, We cannot tell. And he said unto them, Neither tell I you by what authority I do these things. You see, they were not ready to appreciate or receive the answer. Jesus was leading their minds that his authority comes directly from the same source of authority that John the Baptist, sorry, that John the Baptist had. His authority is none other than God. But you see, Jesus was seeking to lead their minds to the right answer. They were not ready to see what was really obvious. Are we like that today sometimes? Notice how Jesus seeks by two parables following on in the passage to lead their minds to the right answer. In Matthew 21 verses 33 to 38, Jesus gives the parable of a householder who gave out his, leased out his vineyard and he sent his messengers and one was wounded and one was hurt and one was cast away. And then finally it says this householder sent unto them his son, saying, they will reverence my son. And because of this recognition that his son was the rightful heir, the rightful inheritor, the one who has the authority because he is a son, he would be reverenced. In this parable, the two characters that stand out is the householder and his son. Jesus was leading their minds to understand that his authority is based on the fact that he is a son, that he is the only son of God, a fact that they were not choosing to acknowledge. The next parable also reveals the same truth. In Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 to 3, is the introduction of the story where Jesus likens the kingdom of heaven unto a certain king which made a marriage for his son. Once again, the two main characters are a father and a son. This contains the answer to their question. Then Jesus made it very clear with a very plain question that he asks them. And in asking them this question, he was seeking to lead them to the truth of the answer that they desperately needed to accept but were refusing to acknowledge. In Matthew chapter 22 verse 41 and onward we read the following. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? They say unto him, The son of David. He saith unto them, How then doth David in spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, till I make thine enemies thy footstool. If David then call him Lord, how is he his son? And no man was able to answer him a word, neither durst any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. What was the answer that Jesus was looking for? The answer is the Son of God. You see, this passage never really dawned on me in its full meaning until I understood the truth about the Sonship of Christ. The Pharisees, in essence, had given a partially right answer. But they did not give the answer that Jesus was looking for. The Messiah was indeed the son of David. 
But Christ was asking them the question to lead their minds to understand by what authority he was operating and what was the authority that backed him up. And so he asked them, listen, the Messiah, whose son is he? The right answer is the son of God. Therefore, his authority is the authority of God, him being the word of God. And the word of God carries the authority of God. All these elements are based on his sonship. It is for this reason that Lucifer attacked it from day one to this day and to the end of the great controversy. And when we understand this, we will understand how the question of authority really fits into the battle between Christ and his angels and Satan and his angels. You see, the Jews could have known the truth of the fact that Christ as the Messiah was the Son of God. They could have read those passages that we read earlier in Proverbs chapter 8 or chapter 30 or Psalm chapter 2 or Daniel chapter 3. They would have seen revelations that God in his Son had invested authority. But they refused to acknowledge the Son for who he really was, the Son of God. This was satanic rebellion in continuance. You see, Lucifer desired to hide and obscure and obstruct the divine authority of Christ by attacking his sonship. In cleansing the defiled temple, Christ demonstrated his divine authority as the Son. It was his house, as we read in Hebrews. He is a son over his own house. You see, someone else had taken possession of the house. Someone else had taken possession of the temple. The enemy had to be cast out, and he can only be cast out by one who has authority to do it. The enemy is the one who rebelled against the son who has the rightful authority. And just as Satan is cast out of heaven, Christ and his authority as the Son of God wants to cast him out of the spiritual temple today. This is a vital spiritual lesson for us. The Sonship of Christ is the basis of his divine authority. In our last moments in this section, we just want to see the relevance of all this for us. You see, the wisdom of God, Christ being the wisdom of God, is intimately linked with the power of God, that is, the authority of God. The disciples, those unlike the Jews, who believed in Christ, who accepted Christ for who He really was, confessed that He is indeed the Son of God. In this confession, voiced by Peter, among others in many places, where Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. In this confession was a recognition of the Sonship of Christ, a recognition of the authority of Christ. Notice how the Sonship of Christ combines the wisdom of God and the power or the authority of God. We read it earlier, but now let's read it in the light of what we have learned so far. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24 says, But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Did you see that? Christ is both the power of God and the wisdom of God. Why is that? Because He is the only begotten Son. Because He accomplished what God chose to reveal through Him. Notice the relevance of this for us in the wonderful verse 
at the close of the same chapter. It shows that Christ being the wisdom of God and the power of God is of special relevance to us. Notice what it says in chapter 1 and verse 30 of 1 Corinthians. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Christ is made unto us now wisdom and righteousness and all these wonderful things. In other words, Christ is to be our wisdom and he comes to us not just as the wisdom of God, but also linked with the power of God. You see, when we accept Christ for who he really is and recognize his authority and submit to it, we are reinstated and we are part of that circuit of beneficence from which Lucifer rebelled. We come under his authority. We are authorized by his authority. This is highly significant and empowering in the context of the great controversy. You see, this is how we become partakers of Christ and therefore partakers of all that he is. The question of authority and sonship is at the very heart of it. Christ has authorized us to use his own authority. He is made unto us wisdom, and therefore he is also made unto us power. The authority and power that he gives us is over all the enemy's assumed authority. This is the power of victory. We need not be enslaved. We need not be deceived. The doctrine and the truth of the Son of God is a powerful truth. It is not just a theory. It is not just an opinion. It is an authoritative and powerful truth that Satan knows very well. Notice how Christ gives to us his very own authority. In John chapter 1, verse 12, it says, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. When we receive him for who he really is, as the only begotten Son, we are really receiving Him as the wisdom of God and as the power of God. That's why the Bible says, as many as received Him, to them gave He power. Just how much power is that? How much authority is that? Luke chapter 9, 10 and verse 19 tells us, Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Christ gives us power and authority over all the power of the enemy. Satan knows this, and he knows that all this is based on our realization and acceptance of him as the Son of God. Won't you let the Son have authority in your life? You see, only the Son can make you free. We read it in John chapter 8, verse 36, which tells us, If the Son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. Here Christ shows that the power to liberate us from sin comes from Him as the Son. His Sonship is the key to breaking the hold and the assumed authority of Satan over us. That's why it says, If the Son make you free, you shall be free indeed. In this truth is bound up the very authority of that Son, inherited from His Father. You see, the spiritual battle that we face today has much to do with authority. Satan still holds many in his grasp. 
The devil must be cast out. He must be cast out of the soul temple. And the power and the authority that can only accomplish this is the power and the authority of the Son. This is why Christ is made unto us wisdom. He is the wisdom of God. Remember when Jesus was on earth? There was one thing that particularly stood out when he encountered demons. When Jesus was on earth, people who were possessed of demons would sometimes voluntarily speak out. The demons would tremble and declare something voluntarily without being asked. In terror, they would declare, Thou art the Christ, the Son of God, or the Son of God Most High. They said, What have we to do with thee, thou Son of Most High? In all these instances, the demons recognized and saw that this man, the Son of God, had authority. That was the fact and the truth that caused them to tremble. This is the same powerful truth that if we believe today, can be exercised over the assumed power of the enemy. Friends, we don't need to miss this. The acknowledgement of the Son of God is either terror to those who don't believe it, because they recognize in it an authority that challenges them, or it's a joy and blessing and liberation to those who acknowledge it and believe it and submit to that authority. The truth of the Sonship and authority of Christ is well known and understood by the enemy, because it is our power for victory. That's why the scripture says, Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? This is a powerful truth. The power of the Son must be used to cast out the enemy from the soul. I appeal to you in the name of Jesus that you will accept the chiefest among 10,000 and the one altogether lovely. That you will accept his true identity as the only begotten Son of God. Recognizing that in accepting the Son, you are empowered by his own authority as you come under his Sub, uh, submit to Him and under, come under His rule, He will work in you the power that will cause the casting out of the enemy in every aspect of your life. Are you still in bondage to evil habits or evil thoughts or evil activities? Let the Son of God free you. Give your heart to Him today. Let Him have authority in your life and He will cast out the devil. That's His promise. If the Son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. If you were blessed by this message, remember to subscribe and share it with others. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Your prayers and support are appreciated. May God richly bless you through His Son, Jesus.